I want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It is good to be here. I have just uh, really appreciated each part of the service, the opening devotional, the Sunday school singing. It's all been a real blessing. Look forward to worshiping on. I stand before you with some trepidation. Um, one is, is I've had this cold going on for a while. In fact, I called Elisa the other day and said, "Do we? Do you have another box of Kleenexes?" I just realized the lot. I took the pulled the last Kleenex out of the box in my truck, and I'm starting to feel panicky. And uh, so, anyways, the other is with the uh, subject this morning. Uh, handling the Word of God, I, I ask for your prayers and uh, just uh, want this to be for God's glory. Um, I would say we're reviewing the Word this morning, kind of like I told my instruction class the other evening. I said, you know, I don't know that I can teach you anything that you haven't learned in the CLP Bible units. But I said, we're reviewing and we're continuing to learn. Um, and I feel like that's what we're doing here this morning. Romans 12.1. This is not the main passage, but it's kind of some background verses. 12.1-8. Uh, through 8. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Uh, this first verse here, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then three, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. <clears throat> For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so being many, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having been gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophesy, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that is teaching on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now I'd like to move back to Nehemiah, which is the main text. Um, and I'd like to... Um, Look at this first chapter of Nehemiah, and I've titled the message Lessons in Building from Nehemiah. And uh, some of these verses from Romans, I felt like they were a good um, cross composition to this passage in Nehemiah, uh, helpful from the New Testament, and we'll be looking at some of those later on in the message. So lessons in building from Nehemiah chapter 1. These are what I would consider foundational church building. And the three things I would like to look at here are solidarity, a deep burden of love for our fellow brethren, and then 
deep sorrow and repentance for sin, and then a trust in God's strong arm. And I know that we could get more from this passage, but this is what I've has stood out to me. And I want to acknowledge David Guzik for his helpful online study guide. I found it to be... Uh, I took this course in, in Bible school on Nehemiah and I uh, found it very interesting then. And then I was reading it in a devotional as a devotional here several months ago and it stood out to me, especially in the times we're in or the time we're in. And, uh, and then I was reading... Uh, David Guzik's work on it and uh, found it helpful. Nehemiah 1.1 The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Now if you read Esther, uh, she was in Shushan as well, in Persia. Uh, the capital city there. That Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with the men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, thank you, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, pray, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sin of the children of Israel which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. I'm sorry, lost my place here. Um, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the furthest part of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah can remind me of a Moses figure. He was a person of high standing, in the kingly court. Um, And he was in a court that was other than his own nationality. Ethnically, he was a Jew in a um, Persian environment, in a Persian high court. I think of Daniel as well and Joseph, Moses, 
two, he was a prince. And uh, thinking of Daniel, he was the chief advisor and later on became prime minister. Think of Joseph, he was promoted to prime minister after a rocky start. Um, it's difficult to know how special or a high position the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah, was. Uh, we know it was an intimate position. You wouldn't be a king and have a cupbearer uh, unless you really trusted him on a very, very deep level. This was the man responsible for testing the king's wine. He made, probably made sure the right kind of wine came in. He knew what the king preferred. Uh, maybe a, uh, you know, a certain kind of grape. Uh, maybe he liked you know, different wines for different times of the day or the year. Uh, he was the last fall guy fall guy in front of the king. In other words, um, he tested each cup that came to the king. And if um, that wine was poisoned, he was the guy that would go down um, to, to save the king. And it would have made a lot of sense for him to say, long live the king, each time as he served him, as was tradition. Uh, you know, it was more than just a ritual statement for Nehemiah. Long live the king, because if he didn't live long, Nehemiah wouldn't be living long either. So, we don't know a lot about him besides that he was a king's cupbearer, and then on that he had leadership capabilities, as we see later on into the book. But we know that just from him being the king's cupbearer, that he was a man of, he was a tr man of, uh, that was trustworthy and, and of, of reputation. So Hananiah, one of his brethren, came from Judah, and he asked them concerning these Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity. Hananiah gives a report to Nehemiah concerning his fellow brethren. Again, notice that these were spoken as, as survivors and escapees. Um, Today we can maybe think of them as refugees. Men and women, families, children who were living in very difficult circumstances. We should note the book of Nehemiah begins 15 years after the book of Ezra ends and some 150 years after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and probably what, maybe uh, a hundred years or so after the, after the, the uh, temple was rebuilt. I don't know that math exactly. But Ezra had went back and he had rebuilt the temple and he had tried to rebuild the walls and there was so much opposition. So the temple got mostly rebuilt, or it did get rebuilt. And there was a celebration for that, although the people wept, if you remember, because it wasn't like the Temple of Solomon. And uh, yet the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still in a rubble. And, the, and, the, and like Hananiah says, the gates burned with fire. And he says, because of this, in verse 3, there's great distress and reproach. Why the distress and why the reproach? 
The wall of the holy city is broken down. Instead of it being something that provided protection, it would become a pathway or a place people walked on, rocks that people walked on, or rubble. Maybe it wasn't even, you weren't even able to walk on it. It was too uh, rugged. Um, instead of being a beautiful structure around the city, it had become something that looked like a bunch of stones that had gotten out of place. The gates are burned. They're gone. These gates that used to give a show of force, a show of... Um, Dignity to the people, or, or gave the people inside the city dignity when the enemy approached. Um, they were gone. They were incinerated. And I imagine what parts of the gate weren't burned by the by the Babylonians were probably burned by the refugees or the surviving people there using those gates for firewood, probably for their existence. So, again, we have an interval of, of less than 100, probably less than 100 years here from the time of the rebuilding, maybe 75 years, we don't really know, from the time of the rebuilding of the temple to the time that this takes place. And uh, these people aren't happy. This, the temple's there, but the walls are gone. A city... Back then, without a wall, was a city that was just a backwater place. It wasn't, um, nothing of value could be stored in it. Um, it could easily be approached, things could be stolen. Um, the temple wasn't safe because of that. They could have a building there, but they couldn't keep valuables there because they'd be taken away. And so Hananiah was grieving. And the people, he was grieving also partly because I think the people weren't grieving. Uh, he was saying, you know, the city's in a terrible place and things are broken down and it's not what it could be. And, and people aren't rising up to put it back to where it should be. Nehemiah said, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and mourned for many days. It's thought that he may have been mourning for up to four months and fasting. This report of Hananiah deeply moved Nehemiah. And it's noteworthy to me that Nehemiah takes on the responsibility for his people. He had a good position here. And we thought we were reading out of 1 John this morning, Love Not the World. You know, I believe if Nehemiah would have loved the world, he would have heard this report. He might have said, well, those guys really need to buckle up and do their job over there. And, you know, I've got my thing to do here, and that would have been the last of it. But somehow God impressed on Nehemiah that he had a responsibility for his people, and he took that seriously. And he went to prayer and fasting. In the initial return to Jerusalem with Ezra's, Ezra's group after the 70-year captivity, only about 50,000 Jews returned. And that was probably only about 2% of the captives that had, that had left Jerusalem to go to Babylon. 
So here many years later, uh, Nehemiah is praying and he's fasting for the state of his people. Four months. And if we look out further, uh, it's calculated that it only took him about 52 days to rebuild the wall after they got started. But what I want to focus on here is his time that he took to really seek the Lord's face. It wasn't just something that he felt a flush of, I'm going to go help those people. That something needs to be done. Let's pass a plate here, you know, in the palace. Maybe the king will give us some extra money and, you know, they can take back a few thousand and do something. No, he took personal responsibility. He prayed and he fasted. He cried out to the Lord for his people. He said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and your mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. So he didn't just pray and say, God, is there something that could be done? He went back to God's promises and said, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. You reminded God of his promises. Those who observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servants, which I pray before you now day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. He's taken personal responsibility here. He, he repents and he acknowledges his people haven't kept their side of the covenant God made with them. The conditional covenant that God made with them in, uh, in Exodus and, and uh, Deuteronomy. The, you remember Moses talking with the children of Israel and saying, you know, if you do what God says, all these blessings will come on you. If you don't do what God says, He will expel you from the land or the land will expel you. And, and Nehemiah is going back to that again. But also God says that if they obey Him, He'll bring Him back. And Nehemiah goes back to that as well. But note here the sense in which Nehemiah assumes the responsibility for his people's sin. He could have said, I'm a good man, like the Pharisee did. You know, I've done... I, I, I pray diligently. Or he could have been like the rich young ruler who said, I've done all these things for my youth. But he didn't. He assumes responsibility for his people's sin. He could have said, I diligently serve the Lord. It's not me who made the mess. It's not my fault the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. But he doesn't do that. You never lighten the load unless you first have felt the pressure in your own soul. You are never used of God to bring a blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they are. Redpath. A quote from Redpath. Nehemiah may well have been justified in making all these claims, and I expect he was a model Jewish citizen, a man of virtue, commitment, and character. Rather, he took the identity of his people. People that had some really bad baggage. 
He associated with the corporate sin of his people. And in doing so, he became a useful vessel to bring the help and the support that Israel so badly needed at that time. I was reminded of Job's final response to God. Job was a godly man. A man of whom it is written, was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. A man of whom God Himself said, Have you considered My servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man and one who fears God. (coughs) You know, it would seem if God said that about a mortal man or about us or about me, that we or I would have it made, wouldn't we? If, if God would say about me, have you considered my servant, Gerald, or have you considered our servant, Bethel? There's none like them on the face of the earth. Blameless and upright and one who fears God and shuns evil. You know, wouldn't we feel like we've made it? Yet after a very painful and difficult journey in which Job is faced with unimaginable loss, wrongful accusations by people who were supposed to be his friends, and a painful disease in which he mainta- through which he maintains his innocence and his integrity uh, and hope in God, he's followed up with this conversation with God. And following that conversation, um, Job's repentance and re- recognition of of the sovereignty and holiness of God is just remarkable. It, that's in Job 42.1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hide counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Listen, please, and let me speak, you said. And listen, please, and let me speak, Job said. And then you said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So when Job sees the Lord for who he is, even though he was a blameless man, when he sees the Lord for who he is, Job repents. He says, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. In Job 1.1, Job is called blameless. Here at the end of the book, he abhors himself. This has been the experience of the choicest of God's saints through the ages. The more one grows in grace, the meaner he is in his own eyes, writes D.L. Moody. I think I've yet to really understand the full implication of the book of Job, but I, I'm learning. And uh, I just I find it's more and more interesting. <clears throat> Somehow I think Nehemiah experienced a Job situation. I believe God wants to bring us to this place as well, the state of repentance. The state of saying, here I am, Lord, at your bidding, Lord, without anything special in and of myself, Lord. 
the Romans 12 state where it says, use them. There's a command, use them there. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Then he goes on to say, we're all many members, but we're in one body. And all these members, they don't have the same function. For we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And then in verse 6, having these different gifts then, it says, let us use them. Let us use them. And ministry, let us use it. And Job was brought to this state where God was saying, um, you know, it's not you, it's me. And Nehemiah brought to this very same place where it's not Nehemiah, not about Nehemiah, but it's about me and my name. And God brings, draws Nehemiah into that. And Nehemiah repents. He associates with his people and repents for his people, even if this wasn't his individual sin. And we don't know, maybe there was an individual sin, and I suppose that, and I know there's enough individual sins to go around. Nehemiah 1.8 says, Remember, I pray thee the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest part of heavens, yet will I gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Remember here, Nehemiah was probably born in Shushan or born in Persia. And when he's thinking about helping out these people back in Jerusalem, he's not thinking of going from here to Lynchburg or here to the valley. We're looking at 800 miles between here and Jerusalem. And uh, that's a big enough trip for my day. But for Nehemiah, that's a serious trip. That's a serious trip for Ezra and for the people going back. Um, so it's, it's, it's a life change here for him. And he's taking on their identity. These are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive by the, to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. A quote here from Redpath again, leaders must prepare themselves for the difficult work because it won't be easy. There is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. For whenever people of God say, let us arise and build, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. And I believe we're all called to lead in building God's kingdom. We're all called to lead here. So I have three questions here that I'd like to for us to ask ourselves from Nehemiah's example in chapter 1. And I'll answer these questions as from my own personal testimony and experience. And you could probably answer them as well, uh, maybe in a different way. 
But I would like to think about this. Are we truly associating ourselves with our fellow brethren as did Nehemiah? Again, he could have chosen to ignore the reports from his fellow brethren in Jerusalem. Life was good for him in Shushan. Instead, he grieved for them. I know I have a lot to learn about grieving for my fellow brethren. I think we all do. The suffering and the rejoicing with the body concept that Paul addresses is something I can learn and we can learn. The knowledge that his brethren were still subject to raids and oppression from their enemies brought Nehemiah to deep self-introspection. He prayed and he fasted for the situation. Perhaps Nehemiah was struck with the thought, our brethren have joined the front lines to reestablish our our presence, our heritage in Jerusalem. And only 2% of them are doing what God willed for His people to do. Here we are in Shushan, under the goodwill of the king, doing well and wondering about the failings of our fellow brethren back there in Jerusalem. Well, it's not news to any one of us here. We have a work to do right here at Bethel. And we need a strong spirit of solidarity with each other that comes from the realization that God has placed us right here in this congregation to perform His will collectively. God doesn't just want us to join hands. He would have us join hearts as well. Where there's neither Greek nor Jew starts right here at home. Where there's neither Schrock nor Troyer, Summers nor Yoder, Morgan nor Martin, Nicely nor Freed, Stolzfus nor Good, nor, nor Booth, nor Republican nor Democrat, old nor young, but where Christ is all and in all. And I hope I didn't miss anyone's last name. Um, Hilty. I missed that. But we all are here in Drombie. Uh, We are all here and we want God to be all and in all. Christ to be all and in all. Number two question, have we repented as did Nehemiah? Do we recognize that we have sinned? There is a universal sin of rebellion that we have all experienced or share through Eve and Adam's sin. And I believe the sin comes closer to home and our failures more closely connected to our own lack of godliness than we would like to think many times. Perhaps you haven't sinned, but perhaps we have. Have you ever thought about that? How, like Nehemiah, we associate with the people we're with. We assume the joys, the sorrows, the sins and the successes with the people we're with and how that makes us responsible together corporately. And these are just some words from me. We have placed the God of this world before You, O God. We have worshipped the works of our hands. We haven't loved our neighbors ourselves. We haven't submitted to each other as we should have. We've placed our status and our business and our success before our relationship with You. In our relationships with each other, in our relationships with our wives and children, we have not done as well in the Lord as we should have. 
We have kept a keener eye on the world and what the world counts as beautiful and cherishes than the eternal values of the purity and heart concept that you would will for us, O Lord. We haven't pled and sought for the one lost sheep as we should have, and we've excused ourselves with the benefits of peace that are the results of non-confrontation. Lord, there's so many sins for us to repent of individually. If we're really serious with ourselves, we know that we have failed so many times. And so many personal failings have kept us from being effective, as effective, both personally and corporately, as we should have been and as we should be. And we recognize this as sin, O Lord. We repent of it and we promise by Your grace to rise to the charge You've laid upon us. And that's coming from me. And I know you could be saying something else. And I, I recognize that. Um, I just, you know, can we be like Nehemiah and, and repent um, with our people? Have we recognized the strong hand of the Lord? Nehemiah 1.10 says, Now these are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand hand. Rebuilding the wall was an impossibility. A hundred years more or less had passed since Ezra had laid out led out in the building of the temple. And since that time, resistance from the surrounding people had kept the walls from going up. Physically speaking, who was Nehemiah to think that he could somehow bring about stability for, for so long there had been failure? Physically speaking, Nehemiah was Yes, a trusting, trustworthy man. A somewhat important man in the Persian kingdom. Maybe seems like he was quite well to do financially. However, in and of himself, he was not up to the task of rebuilding this wall. And he knew it. So he reminds the Lord of something. He reminds the Lord of His covenant with His people. And he expresses his full confidence in the Lord's strong hand or a strong arm. And we have to do that. We have to realize that we're not up to the task. We don't have it in and of ourselves. We can't do it. It's only in the Lord's strong arm that we can succeed and fulfill His will. In conclusion, the history of Israel moved forward here at this point, because of a man, Nehemiah, a man who was in tune with God, who repented, who took um, seriously um, and personally what his people were going through. Not just Nehemiah, but Hananiah and many others who grieved for their people. These men took godly action. They prayed and they fasted. They repented and they pled for God's forgiveness in His favor. And they trusted in God's strong arm. And I think that's the recipe for us to move forward as well. We pray and we fast and we repent and we plead for God's forgiveness in His favor and trust in His strong arm. I believe He will lead us forward. And uh, I pray for that for us. May the Lord bless you.